Well, in looking and considering this famous text, which it is, it's a, a most famous text, the first thing I want us to note about this passage of Scripture is the very timing of its composition. The Apostle Paul has written this letter to Timothy somewhere between the dates of 64 and 65 AD. This places the writing of this letter just before the Apostle Paul's death in Rome by the Emperor Nero. And Paul's soon demise is so significant because the Apostle Paul was actually acutely aware of the reality of his impending death. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, probably just a page over, says this. Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. So what we have before us today are Paul's last words to young Timothy, young Timothy, his child in the faith. What we have before us is the torch being passed on. Timothy, young Timothy, will now be overseeing Paul's church plant without the comfort, without the security of having the Apostle Paul around anymore. And so with this fact in mind, let us just pay special attention today and to really be drawn in by the urgency and by the solemnity with which the great Apostle Paul would leave this world. What would he leave this world saying to a young pastor who's about to oversee his churches? And of all the places, of all the places that Paul could point young Timothy to for the direction that he will surely need to continue on and persevere in his Christian life, to find the much-needed direction for how he's going to fulfill his calling to pastor and to protect the church of God against falsehood, and where Timothy's to turn for ultimately every possible issue that may confront him in his walk. Of all the places the Apostle Paul points him is to the Scriptures. It's to the Scriptures. So as we, along with Timothy, are directed to the Word of God, what we're going to see today is actually what the Word of God has to say about itself, how the Word of God describes itself, what its origin is, or better yet, who its origin is. And it's because of its almighty origin that we will submit ourselves to the Word of God and to its intended purpose and its function, and we will actually be able to rest in its sufficiency for us. So returning to Timothy's setting here in Ephesus in what is the context for our passage today, it's also very interesting to note that even in Timothy's church, even in the church in Ephesus, a church that was birthed out of the very mission work of an apostle of Jesus Christ, it's interesting to note that Timothy's church still had problems. It still had issues. We ought not to think that if we could just simply return to the first century church, all of our problems would go away. Everything would be perfect and the church would be perfectly in order. 
No, actually God has decreed that there would always be opposition for his people. There will always be difficulties. There will always be issues. Even in the first century church, this was not an exception. Notice chapter 3, verse 1, because Paul actually begins this chapter reminding Timothy that the future will not be sweet. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Paul goes on in verse 10 to say that these difficult times were not only a future distant reality for the church to come, but he says that the persecutions of believers had actually already begun, persecutions which the Apostle Paul himself had actually already begun to experience. Verse 10 and following says, Now you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance. Persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at, at Iconium, in Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This harsh reality is the context and is the setup for Paul's grand statements about the scriptures and about the purpose for the scriptures. Paul is reminding Timothy that there will always be those who are heading down the path of error, the wrong path, the path to deception. And yet at the same time, there will always be those who are heading down the path of grace. Like Paul, who are persevering in the way of godliness being faithful to the Lord Jesus despite any opposition. And so this is where we pick up, beginning at verse 14. Here, Paul takes this sharp contrast between the actions of those who are going astray and the actions that Timothy himself needs to take. And Paul's directing his young child in the faith to the only sure hope, the only sure so source for direction, the very revelation of God. Again, verse 14, Paul says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And so do you see the the contrast here that Paul's drawing out by beginning verse 14 with that language. But you, however, you, however, Timothy, there, there's the two directions that you can go and there's no neutral ground. You can be like those of verse 13 who are going from bad to worse, not only being deceived, but as a result, deceiving others. Or young Timothy, you can continue in the revealed faith, which has its end in a culmination of salvation. There's two roads, and Timothy, by the grace of God, has been placed from childhood on the right path, and Paul's calling him to continue on that path. But where does this path begin? Where did it and where does the right path begin? Just where it did with Timothy here in verse 15. It all began with the sacred writings. 
sacred writings. That's simply a way that the Greek-speaking Jews would refer to the Old Testament writings, the Old Testament books. And because Timothy had been given these writings from his youth, young Timothy was surely a blessed child. The Apostle Paul has already recalled in chapter 1, verse 5, the names of the two faithful women that God used in Timothy's life to raise him up in the instruction of the Lord. And these women were none other than Timothy's mother and Timothy's grandmother, Eunice and Lois. Think about these two great women. What a blessing it would be to have your name actually inscripturated in the very word of God as an example, as an illustration of what a faithful and a godly mother looks like. Two seemingly ordinary women who will now forever serve as examples to mothers, to grandmothers, to all parents alike as to what should be your utmost priority with your children. And that is namely the sacred writings. The sacred writings. So to the mothers and to the grandmothers present here today, are you following this apostolically praised example of Eunice and Lois? Fathers and grandfathers, are you making sure that your children know more than anything that your soul desires that they know the sacred writings? And why should we be so concerned with these writings? Why so concerned? Because there's many wonderful and beneficial things that we can teach our children. We can teach them math. We can teach them science, history, computers, sports. But the sacred writings are to be of our utmost concern because of what verse 15 goes on here to say about them. He says it's the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings contain the desperately vital information that your children need to know about their salvation. A salvation that is revealed in the writings to be specifically through faith in Christ Jesus. And so this is what's interesting is that these particular sacred writings here that give us the wisdom of salvation through the faith that's in Christ Jesus... Is, the, is that the sacred writings, as I said, that Paul's referring to up to this point, the sacred writings that young Timothy would have had as a child and would have been raised up in, were necessarily limited to the Old Testament writings. That's all there was at this point in time for young Timothy. But yet it was these writings, the Old Testament writings, that Paul says pointed God's people to the same salvation that we on this side of the New Testament writings are so blessed to enjoy, a salvation which is through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what the Old Testament scriptures had shown young Timothy. And it's such a glorious truth that the Old Testament is about Christ. It's such a vital hermeneutical reality to us how you should read your Old Testaments that we've actually devoted an entire conference to it here at our church in hopes that you would be convinced that from Genesis to Revelation is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus told those men on the road to Emmaus. It's what Jesus told the Jews, those Jews who were challenging him in John chapter 5, verse 39. He told them this. He said, you search the scriptures 
You search the Old Testament because you think in and that you have eternal life. But Jesus says, it's these that testify about me. It's the same thing that Peter preached in his sermon in Acts 3, verse 18. He said, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And so now with Paul's similar statement about the Old Testament sacred writings, what we have is Jesus, Peter, Paul, all in unison stating the fact that the sacred writings, the Old Testament, is all about the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And so now to the children, to the children here, since I've already spoken to your parents about their responsibility to teach you the scriptures above all else because it's there in the scriptures, it's in the Bible where you learn about what Jesus did on the cross to save sinners just like you. But children, know this. Know that just because you learn about the Bible and because you learn about what the Bible says about Jesus, that that is, is not in and of itself enough. Because you can memorize every single memory verse that we give you in Sunday school. You can learn the Bible and know the Bible as well as Pastor Emilio knows the Bible. But unless you do more than that, unless you do more than just learn, you will not be saved. You must do what Timothy did in verse 14. Because Timothy didn't just learn the things in the Bible about Christ. Paul told Timothy, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Become convinced of. When Timothy was a child, he didn't just learn about Christ. He had become convinced about the Christ. This means that Timothy so believed the Bible and what it said about the Christ that he would never let anyone deceive him. He would never let anybody come to him and tell him that trusting in Christ, that's not the only way to be saved. Timothy would never, therefore, allow anybody to tell him that he really didn't need to trust in Jesus Christ because he was a good enough person. No, Timothy had a, a conviction about who the Bible said the Christ was. And we all must have the same conviction we must all be convinced about Jesus Christ in the same way that we will continue on in that faith and never be moved, adults and children alike. So what Paul in verses 14 and 15 then has been reminding Timothy to stay on the path that he's on, the path that leads to salvation, not to waver in faith like those who have begun to turn their ears from the truth and follow after myths. Timothy was to continually faithfully serve and trust in the Christ of the sacred writings. But now in verse 16, moving on to verse 16, Paul's going to widen the scope of the writings that he's going to refer young Timothy to because not only are the sacred writings, not only are the Old Testament writings in particular beneficial for the man of God, but look what Paul says in verse 16. He now says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All the scripture is inspired by God and profitable. So the question is, why does Paul need to add this adjective all when speaking about the scriptures? 
He's just referenced specifically the Old Testament scriptures in verse 15 that, that Timothy grew up with, the sacred writings. So what else now could he be including with the word all? What else could he be referring to? Well, the reason Paul now has to speak of all the scriptures is because at the very time that the Apostle Paul is pinning this very letter to Timothy, the very canon of the New Testament and of the Word of God in particular was growing. The canon was growing. It's no longer simply the Old Testament writings that are profitable for Timothy, but all the scriptures, including those that are being written down at that very moment. They're all being written for Timothy's benefit. But how do we know that Paul is not just, again, simply, simply repeating the reference to the Old Testament writings here in verse 16? How do we know that? Well, we know that Paul now has in mind other writings as well because of the very specific word that is used to describe these writings as a whole. Paul calls them scripture. Scripture, and the word in the Greek for that is graphe. Graphe. The word graphe is used 50 times in the New Testament. And all but twice of those 50 times, it's used to have a very specific reference to nothing other than the Old Testament writings. Writings that would have been considered authoritative. The very words of God included only in the Old Testament canon. The word graphe. Now, that doesn't, probably doesn't surprise you that the word translated scripture here uh, re re could refer and does refer to the Old Testament writings such as Moses and the prophets, all of the books we have in our Old Testament scripture. But what's so important to note are those two exceptions that I mentioned to the word graphe or scripture as referring to only the Old Testament. And it's because of these exceptions that we know that the Apostle Paul is now expanding his idea here in verse 16 from just pointing Timothy to the Old Testament books, but now referencing New Testament books as well. Please turn with me to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. First Timothy 5.17 says this. I actually read it already today. It says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Verse 18, For the Scripture says, Now here's our word. That's the word, graphe, which always refers to the Old Testament canonical books, not Jewish writings, not apocryphal writings. Always authoritative Old Testament scriptures. Here Paul says, for the scripture says, and he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And the scripture does say that, Deuteronomy 25.4. But what's interesting is the next quote that Paul denotes as being scripture, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now it's very interesting in the NASB I know uh, the, the italization is, is different. Um, it's not all uppercase. It's because that quote that Paul says here is scripture, that is graphe, the laborer is worthy of his wages, is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. So what is this scripture that Paul refers to? Well, this quote, the laborer is worthy of his wages, is a direct 
word-for-word quote from the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 7, uh, precisely. Paul, in his very first letter to Timothy, has already used this specialized word, graphe, that normally always has referred to specifically the Old Testament scriptures. Paul's now using that same word to refer to the gospel of Luke as scripture, as scripture. Let's look at the other exception because these exceptions are important enough for you to turn to yourself. Turn to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Here's the other exception of the word graphe. Uh, here going to refer to some other New Testament writings as well. Verse 15 says, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures. As they do the rest of the scriptures. Peter here is including Paul's letters as uh, being lumped in and is including them with the rest of the scriptures, with the rest of the graphe, with the rest of the Old Testament canonical scriptures. This is the amazing reality that's taking place at this time is that God is adding to the written revelation that he has left for his people. And it only makes sense. Jesus Christ had come and fulfilled all of the old covenant writings. And correspondingly, now God is choosing to inscripturate the details of what Jesus Christ has done in fulfillment of that old covenant. He's giving us now the details of how we're all being brought into this blessed new covenant relationship with God that Jesus Christ has inaugurated. God chose to do this, and I specifically say God chose to inscripturate these things, these, these details and these accounts of Jesus, and not Paul or Luke or Peter. And I say specifically God chose to inscripturate because of what verse 16 explicitly goes on to say about the scriptures and it's speaking to their origin the origin of the scriptures verse 16 all scripture is inspired by God by God it says inspired by God and not therefore inspired by man now with this being said we're going to have to learn another Greek term here because the NASB here carries over what is really just a traditional rendering from the King James Version of the Bible where it says the scriptures are inspired by God. And inspired by God might, uh, could possibly be and has been misconstrued from the more precise meaning of the Greek term because inspired by God is a translation of one Greek word and the word is theanoustos. Theanoustos. And up to this point of Paul writing 2 Timothy, the word theanoustos has, has, is, is virtually unknown, is an unused word, unknown word, not found in any Christian writings. So it's actually thought that the Apostle Paul actually coined this word, this compound Greek word, to convey the very specific 
the very special characteristic that he's describing of the scriptures. And the reality that's being conveyed here is of, of such a monumental importance that it actually deserves its own word. Because theonoustos is a combination of two words. Theos, which means God, and neuo, which means to breathe. And so by putting these two, two words together, the text is literally saying all scripture is God breathed. God breathed. The ESV says breathed out by God. And so again, it's all of the scriptures, Old Testament, and whatever New Testament books God chooses to have written are breathed out by God himself. Now why is this so important and significant? Because when God breathes out, when God breathes out so as to communicate something, he does so with perfection. And he does so with perfect clarity. Perfect clarity. God does not have any sort of speech impediment. Earth is not so far away from heaven that God struggles to get his message to us exactly as he meant it. No, when God sets out to convey a message to his people, he does so in the same way that he does everything else, with effortless perfection. And so because our scriptures are this, because they are God-breathed, because they originate from God, brothers and sisters, we can have the utmost confidence in the results being exactly as God wanted them to be. It flows directly from this fact. Everything the biblical authors wrote is God-breathed. It comes from this fact that we derive and we acknowledge the scripture's authority, that we derive the scripture's inerrancy, meaning that the scriptures are therefore free from any mistakes. It's because the scriptures are God-breathed, because they're from God himself, that we know the infallibility of the scriptures. It means that the scriptures do not mislead us in anything that they teach. The Bible is God's word, and with that carries with it the highest authority the very mind of God, it carries with it an obligation to be listened to and heeded. The words in this book before you are the very definition of truth and the only revelation of the work of Christ that has been given to us by which we may be saved from hell. The word theonustos, God breathed, is only used once in the Bible here and that word is only used of the Bible. There's no other revelation from God, no other authority established here on the earth by God that has given the description of being God-breathed. The scriptures stand alone as God's revelation to his people. The scriptures, as Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1.19, are a more sure word of prophecy God in his grace has given us objective truth. It's been pinned down for us. It's been written so that we can read it, so that we can study it, and so that we can obey it. God did not designate the words of any one church, of any one person as being God-breathed, just his scriptures. Hence the phrase, sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. 
But if the scriptures are God-breathed and not man-breathed, this raises another question. Because this very letter, 2 Timothy, this God-breathed scripture that we're reading, begins with an introduction. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, and the introduction does not say God, but the introduction is the Apostle Paul. So which is it? Is it God's word or is it Paul's words? And the answer to that question is not a simplistic one, although either way you answer it will in a sense be right, as long as you qualify and there's an understanding that there is a primary author. And since our text here in 2 Timothy doesn't really expound upon the, the divine and human orchestration that's involved with the creation of Scripture, let's turn to a passage, passage that actually does address the issue. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 speaks to how this creation of Scripture is carried out by God through human beings. Verse 20, verse 20 says, But know this, first of all, that no, script, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, uh, meaning that the authors of Scripture are not simply just putting forth their own interpretations of, of the reality of, of what God is doing. No. Verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so the, the, the biblical authors did not of their own accord, did not of their own will, up and decide to pin down some writings that would be theonoustos. But it was the very Holy Spirit of God who moved them to write. But even with that being said, the way in which the Spirit moved on the biblical authors is still very mysterious. It's mysterious. Because it's obvious as you read through the, the, the writings of the different authors in the scriptures that you see and you notice right on the surface of the text, you see distinct stylistic differences. You see distinct um, grammatical and, and vocabulary uses, usages that are unique to the different authors. And so we, we can tell from this that the Holy Spirit did not obviously choose to use a, a strict uh, dictation method of conveying his words, meaning that the, the authors weren't uh, just like robots um, transposing things that were whispered into their ears. And yet, the very words that they wrote are exactly as the Holy Spirit wanted them to be, down to the very particular words Hence the phrase verbal plenary inspiration is what it's been come to, to know, be known as. And so all of this seems to be just another case of, of God working out his mysterious providence in, in his will through men. And with that being said, it's therefore perfectly okay to say that Paul wrote this or that Luke wrote that as long as we recognize that God is the primary author but if you really need a word to hang on to, if you really need uh, some way to describe and something to hold on to, some way to grasp how God breathed out his words through the words of men, 
you might find some repose in the description that, that Louis Burkhoff uses to describe the phenomena of biblical inspiration. He calls it organic inspiration. He's just following the language um, used by men such as Hodge and Warfield before him. But let me just read to you a little excerpt from uh, Burkhoff's systematic just on this uh, mysterious phenomena of how the Bible was inspired. He says, the writers put on their literary productions their own personal stamp and the stamp of their times. Thus, the Bible itself testifies to the fact that it was not mechanically inspired. The Holy Spirit used the writers as he himself had formed them for their task without in any way suppressing their personality. He qualified them and guided them and thus inspired the books of Scripture organically. Organically. And so to state it as simply as possible, the Scriptures are God's very words conveyed to us through the words of men. But I know that even with all of that being said and all of that being well known, it's still precisely at this point that many who have a sub-biblical view of God, they wonder if such a feat is even possible. They wonder, is it truly possible for God to create a book exactly how he wants it if the medium of, of conveying those words is through fallen and sinful man? So listen, brothers and sisters, because this, this really is an all-important point. Because if you don't think that God is wise enough and, and powerful enough and sovereign enough, if you don't think he's, he's these things enough to overcome in sinful nature so as to write a book exactly how he wants it, how can you possibly believe that God is wise enough or powerful enough or sovereign enough to overcome your sinful will, your sinful desires, so that you might believe the very gospel in the Bible. God is surely sovereign enough, powerful enough, wise enough to do this. Those who doubt God's ability to communicate to us through men just don't know the God of the Bible. And so believe me that God did not break a sweat in the work that it took for him to convey his words to us through these men. No, God has surely given us his very words. And so now back in verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, the text goes on to describe for us um, some of the primary functions that God has determined for us to use his word. In 2 Timothy 3, it goes on to say that it's profitable for teaching. The Word of God is profitable for teaching. And this is certainly a foundational function of God's Word for the man of God. This term, translated teaching, is alternately translated doctrine. It's used 19 times by Paul. In 15 of those 19 times, this word teaching or doctrine is used right here in the pastoral epistles. That's, that's first and second Timothy and Titus. 15 out of Paul's 19 times to use this word teaching and doctrine is used in the pastoral epistles, making the obvious point that teaching and doctrine are to be emphasized in the pastoral work. 
But let me just remind all of you as we, as we go on to look at these um, things that the, the Word of God is, is being pointed to, to, to young Timothy for. Let me just remind you that even though Timothy is an elder, he is a pastor, and, and Paul's giving him specifically these things for him to use in that ministry, let me remind you that we're all called to be using the Scriptures in the same ways uh, to some degree. Because men, you are to be teaching your wives the Word of God. You're to be discipling with the Word of God the younger men. The more mature women are, are likewise commanded in the Scriptures in Titus chapter 2 to be teaching the younger women. Wives, you're to be teaching your children in the home. And I just remind you of this because there's, there's actually very few requirements very few standards that elders are called to that not every other Christian in the church is not also called to carry out to some degree. We're all called to be like Jesus Christ, to do our part in extending his kingdom and to do that with whatever, whatever gifts he has given us. And we're all, therefore, to use his God-breathed scriptures to accomplish these tasks. And so don't think that this list here doesn't apply to you as Paul gives it to Timothy. Back in verse 16 now, Paul lists some of the, what are certainly some more of the more difficult tasks that Timothy's be given the responsibility to use the scriptures for, Paul says, for reproof and for correction. And again, don't think that this doesn't likewise apply to you as well in some way. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul, not directing his command to the elders, but he says, brethren. Galatians 6, 1, brethren. Even if anyone is caught in a trespass, he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. That's to the whole church. We're to be reproving and correcting each other for the good of each other. It's not simply a call. Yes, it is a call to the elders, certainly, but we're all given that call um, to carry out reproof and correction. And here in Galatians, Paul even gives us the, the means by which we're to carry out that correction. He says, with a spirit of gentleness. We're to do these things in love, certainly hoping that when we come across a brother or a sister in sin or an error, that it's, that it's done in, in ignorance or, or an unintentional error. Um, and we're to do that as looking to ourselves. But I just thought, thank God. Thank God that he has given us his word so that when we do have to carry out that uh, awkward and difficult task of reproving and correcting one another, that what we can bring to our brothers and sisters is, is not the direction and an opinion of ourselves, but we can bring the very word of God, the direction from God, the God who loves us and has our best interests in mind. We can bring our brothers and sisters to the God-breathed scriptures and just trust that the word of God, that the spirit of God in them will do that work. And because none of us have arrived uh, reproof and correction will always be a part of the work of the scriptures in the church. Lastly here, 
God through Paul, then lists the fact that the scriptures are profitable, he says, for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. Here we see that the work that the scriptures are doing in us is a, a process. The scriptures are to be used for the training in righteousness. I say it's a process because any training takes time. But this training and the goal of this training is certainly worth the effort because the training that the scriptures are being used for is a training unto righteousness. The very reason for our salvations, the goal of Christ-likeness, training in righteousness. God's word, open communication from our creator, open communication from our judge, from our savior. What else could we want and what else could we need? Well, as verse 17 goes on to say, nothing. Because in verse 17 here is the all-important, the all-encompassing purpose clause for what the scriptures provide to us and why Timothy and why we as well can have comfort in any of our life circumstances. Because the God-breathed scriptures are profitable, verse 17 goes on to say, so that the man of God may be adequate, so that he may be equipped for every good work. It's with these words that Paul is unequivocally stating the utter sufficiency of the scriptures. With the scriptures, the man of God is adequately equipped for every good work. This means that there's no task. This means that there's no calling. This means that there's no deed of righteousness that the Lord requires of you that he has not graciously explained to you in the scriptures just how you're to fulfill it. This means that there's no essential knowledge about God or how you're to be made right with him that he has not graciously revealed to you in the scriptures. And it's because of these things, we more than anyone should be of immeasurable joy because the holy and transcendent God of the universe has graciously crossed that great chasm between he and us. And he has, in his mercy, revealed to us with only the perfect clarity that he could provide. He's revealed to us the redemption that he accomplished through the death of his son. And in his mercy, he has revealed to us everything that we're to do with these re redeemed lives. And so praise God for breathing out his word. And brothers and sisters, I just want you to realize again what it is that you have in your hands right now. What it is that's sitting in your laps. The very words of God that have been given to us for just a time as we are in. Because we are literally in those last days, those difficult last times that the Apostle Paul warned Timothy about. A time when the world around us has all but been given over to the sway of the evil one. And even into the, in the midst of all of this utter confusion, where again are we pointed for the direction that we need? Paul doesn't point Timothy to the local prophet. He doesn't point him to the, to the protection and to the guidance of the government. 
not to the hope of scientific discovery, but to the omniscient God's written revelation. So, brothers and sisters, take not for granted what is in your hands. Read it, obey it, and thank God for it. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you now, Lord, as a church. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for giving us a a foundation with which we can base our very thinking that we can base our knowledge, that we can base our hope and our trust. And Lord, we do not worship the scriptures. Lord, we worship you, the God of our scriptures. And Lord, I thank you now for redemption. I thank you, Christ, for coming and doing what we could not do in our sin, in our rebellion, in our pride, in our love for the things of this world. In your mercy, you paid the price. In your grace, you've redeemed our souls. And we praise you for that. I thank you again for your scriptures. May our church always be a church of the scriptures. May we heed what Paul goes on to tell Timothy to do with the scriptures, to preach the word. Thank you, God, that we are in a church that preaches the word. Thank you that my family, Lord, is in a church that is having the word preached to them. What a mercy, God, that you have given us. We thank you for it, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.